Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus Da Silva, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by one of my psychology professors during my brief stint uh, at Simon Fraser University prior to law. So uh, Dr. Lara Agnan, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So today uh, we're going to talk, obviously it's, uh, I, I think you're probably the first, I guess after Dr. David Cool, I think you're the the only other psychologist I've had on the show so far, which is sad and good because I love psychology. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to, uh, I got a boatload of questions and whatnot that we'll get through today. It's a great opportunity to uh, have a discussion with you. And particularly with the field of research that you're in, I guess, very generally um, social psychology and uh, relating to altruism and it's very broad, but we'll kind of get into it in pro-social behavior. So that's been something that's uh, becoming more of an interest to me lately. Uh, and so very fitting to have you on here today. So I think first of all, I think it would be great to talk about your time at university and we'll kind of go through your university career, then how that lent to the research that you do today. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Richmond, British Columbia, and went to the University of British Columbia for my undergraduate studies. And um, I originally thought I wanted to go into international law. And so um, in my first year, I took like a dabbling of classes. Um, I, I signed up for Latin, um, which I promptly dropped. Um, but I also took in the mix in there was a psychology, a sociology class, a required English class. I think I ended up taking economics in one other class. Um, and I took my first year Psych 100 class um, with a professor named Dr. Stanley Corin, who was a very animated fellow. Um, fun fact, he was also a dog expert. And so every class he would start um, with like an introduction to one breed. And he told us very plainly that this would never be on the exam, but I had friends who like meticulously scribbled information about dogs dog breeds on their notes and it was never tested, but uh, maybe further inspired my love of dogs. But he was a very entertaining um, and, a, and, a, and a very um, engaging instructor. And so I think, you know, partially him and partially the material got me very interested in psychology. It was my favorite class in first year. Um, and so I continued on taking a research methods class in my second year and also a social psych class in my second year. And so um, I remember thinking early on that this was just, you know, I, I, I didn't have a clear end game to where I was going. I just kind of kept picking the class that I liked the most year after year. Um, and that was psychology. And um, I remember actually having a weird experience in social psychology in particular, where um, early on in the class, I had this very strong reactance to learning about the information. Like I thought it was interesting, um, but I also had this pet peeve thinking that they could just classify or speak to you know, human behavior and human reactions, um, and that I would somehow be this special case, um, that I was an exception to the rule. Um, and then, you know, as time went on throughout the semester, I started to realize like, no, it does a pretty accurate job of predicting how I might behave. And so slowly but surely I came around and started to um, have some greater faith in like these findings um, that were meant to capture how um, many people might behave in, in situations like this. Um, and so as a result of the my growing interest in the topic, I started volunteering in a lab or two. Um, I started volunteering in Jeff Hall's, Dr. Jeff Hall's um, 
infant learning lab. And so it, it was a really great experience. He was a fantastic professor and I really liked him and I really liked the work. Um, but I learned very quickly that developmental research was not for me. Um, in part, I mean, the questions were really interesting and I was, I was really amazed by how the scientific process allowed us to ask questions and really dive into like these deep questions of morality and learning um, in these little creatures. Um, but I think I was frustrated by the logistics of data collection with really young kids. In particular, it was really hard to schedule families to get them to come into the lab. It would be, you know, numerous phone calls, um, lots of scheduling. And then finally, if people um, agreed to come in and they did show up, which wasn't always a guarantee, a kid might have, you know, an emotional breakdown or might you know, vomit or have a temper tantrum um, while they're in the lab. And, and for very good reason, we would just stop and, and they would leave. And so it I, I realized that developmental work, while extremely interesting, was not for me. It was not my speed, not my, my particular interest. And so I started volunteering in social psych labs, which kind of helped me get closer to my key interest. Um, and there I studied um, how flirtatious or very talkative people are perceived across cultures. And that was really interesting. I felt like it was closer to what I was excited by. Um, but then I started doing some research and, and in my second and third year of undergrad, volunteering in a lab that studied emotion and how emotion shaped memory. I felt like that was even closer because now I was looking at positive and negative emotions. And then just towards the very end of my degree, a new faculty member joined at UBC named um, Dr. Elizabeth Dunn. And she was really interested in understanding um, whether or not people know what makes them happy and particularly how they might be misled or, or um, inaccurate. And so um, both in terms of personality and research question, I really gravitated towards her lab. I became her lab manager. Um, and I was just really intrigued by the work that she was doing, and I really enjoyed working with her. And um, so with her, eventually I applied to work, uh, to go to graduate school and work with her, um, and she was studying questions, trying to understand what makes people happy and if, if they know it. And so that's the, that's the long-winded and um, serendipitous route to where I ended up, at least at the start of grad school. That's right. And then going into, so now to become a... Uh like a psychology professor, is that inherent that you do uh, doing research? Is that inherent to being a professor or is it kind of a separate thing? Yeah, so so there are multiple flavors of professor uh, positions, um, but by and large, um, one major track, if you will, is to be an experimental researcher who also uh, happens to teach. So my position is by and large, I would say about 40% of my time is devoted to teaching, um, maybe a little less than that, about 40% is devoted to doing my own research and about 20% to service related things that might be contributing to the larger field or to the university or to the department and stuff like that. Um, and so my research is, is very experimental in nature and, and that's what I do. There are other faculty members in the department that are clinical faculty and so um, they might also have their own labs, but they might also have a clinical practice. Um, and so the work that they do and the training that they received is very different than mine. And then there are also faculty in our department who might be um, teaching faculty. So who do not include uh, or do not heavily focus on research, but focus their primary duties and where most of their time and energy is directed is towards teaching. Right. And so for you then heading, uh, after your undergrad, did you go right into your uh, mass, would it be master's? 
it, it was my master's, but I took a year off, um, what some people might call a gap year. And during that year, um, I thought was it was really helpful for me because I was a lab manager in two labs um, with Dr. Eric Ike in a memory and cognition lab and with Dr. Elizabeth Dunn in her um, happiness lab. And so I got to help coordinate a bunch of studies. I got to see kind of the background of how the sausage is made, if you will, like how to coordinate multiple teams that I got to work with graduate students, with the faculty, with the department um, admin folks to make a lot of this happen. Um, and I realized that a large and often overlooked aspect of research is just the logistics and the project management side of things. I mean, there's a lot to be said to learning statistical analyses and study design and clear writing and presentation. Um, but a lot of it has to do with, you know, mobilizing teams and being organized and getting things moving and going. And I also really enjoyed that aspect. So I took a year off. I was a lab manager in both of those labs. And um, I, I used that time to also apply to graduate school. And so I think, uh, I wish I had kept better notes on this, but I think I applied to something like seven or eight schools, some being clinical, some being experimental programs, in part because when it came time to apply, I wasn't exactly sure which of these broad domains I wanted to explore if I uh, if I wanted to be a clinician that would work one on one when you know with with um, clients one day or if I wanted to pursue an experimental route and hopefully become a professor and I thought at least applying to different types of programs would buy me some time um, and it did but eventually I was accepted to one of each program and I, I had to make a decision. And then from there, uh, well, actually, before moving on, I'll ask you, so being a, a lab manager, so at that age, I guess you would have been like 24, 22? Yeah, around, the, the, I, I didn't take a year off in high school or anything like that, so I, I was the age, I have a November birthday, so I was somewhere around there, that sounds right, yeah. Right. And so as, as a lab manager, because, uh, I, you know, young, we'll say early 20s, um, mm -hmm. you know, more or less, um, what was that experience like just being, was that okay? Cause I guess you're also dealing with people who were older than you too, but you were managing the lab that they were in. Yeah. Well, you know, it was, a, it, I, it was an interesting dynamic and it was a lovely place to be. And the two labs I worked in were very different. So in Dr. Eric Ike's lab, he was the um, chair of the psych department at the time. And so he was very busy um, with many things, including admin duties. And so while I was his lab manager, I was also, my primary role in that lab was really to work with maybe one or two other research assistants and primarily collect data. Um, and I would help with some scheduling and reimbursements and paperwork and stuff like that. But in many ways, I was like an active research assistant who maybe helped coordinate a few things for other people um, and when participants would visit and whatnot. Um, Liz's lab was a larger, um, faster moving enterprise at the time because she was a new faculty member and was really motivated and excited to get things going. And so while she maybe only had one or two students at the time, she worked very closely with graduate students in other labs and was starting a number of projects. And so um, my, primary, my primary job in that lab was to help with some of the financial stuff, to help with lit reviews, but to organize lab meetings, um, to make sure that graduate students who were leading projects had the staff and support and the materials that they needed. And sometimes I would help collect data, but by and large, my job was more of the project management. And so, you know, I, I think I saw myself, it, it was a really wonderful position because I really, uh, I really enjoy helping and working with other people. And it was the perfect 
placement to do it because I was excited about the ideas that all these graduate students were testing and I got to make sure that they had the assistance of wonderfully capable and enthusiastic undergraduates who wanted to get involved and see what the research process was like. And so, you know, and I got to tinker with it too because, you know, as I got to know the volunteers, I would know who's especially outgoing and who was especially gifted at certain types of things. Some people were really good at computer skills and some people were really social and loved collecting data out in the field. And so based on what graduate students needed or the project needed, I felt like I could kind of make sure there were compatible fits for the projects and for the volunteers and also make sure that the volunteers were getting exposed to lots of you know, different skills and, and the life cycle, if you will, of a project um, so that you know, they weren't just doing the same thing over and over again, but we're getting a, an array of skills in their toolbox. Well, it sounds like very valuable experience, certainly in a number of areas. Yeah, it was wonderful. And so then, so you do that for a year and mm -hmm. then you go into your master's. Where'd you end up going? Yeah. I ended up staying and working with Liz at UBC, which um, I think in many ways was uh, a, a wonderful, uh, it was a wonderful experience and maybe a blessing in disguise. I didn't know, as I mentioned, I applied to both clinical and experimental programs, not knowing what would be the right fit for me. Um, and eventually I got some really great advice from my former honors advisor, Dr. Sheila Woody, who said, you know, like there are lots of things to take into account, but at the end of the day, what, what are you most excited to talk about over a glass of wine on a Friday night? And I was like, well, that's easy. It's these research questions. Um, and, and she's like, well, then there's your decision. And so I ended up committing to working with Liz at UBC and pursuing these questions about happiness that I was really excited and jazzed about. Um, and Liz and I not only had very similar research interests in that regard, but we also got along really well interpersonally. Um, and I had also, while working with her as a lab manager, I felt like I had built some um, built some familiarity in terms, I understood how the lab worked. I knew who some of the research assistants were. I already had some informal mentors and older graduate students that I had gotten a chance to watch. Um, and I also just knew like the, you know, things that you might take for granted when you start a new graduate program. I knew where the photocopier was. I knew where the mailroom was. I know who to talk to if I needed to, you know, for, for submitting grant applications. I knew the folks in, in the front office. And so um, there were a lot of probably, um, incidental benefits that kind of came from from sticking around at UBC, um, but the the primary reason I chose to stay was the fit with the researcher and the research question, um, and so I stayed with uh, stayed at UBC for an additional five years. The first two years were um, my master's, and then defended that, and then stayed for my PhD for another three. Yeah, well, you know, building those relationships. There's obviously like the the obvious benefit of having good relationships, but mm -hmm. then there's all those unintended um, effects of that where it's like you you build that level of comfort and then just working together, you get you're a little more um, proactive and because there's that comfort that's been established. Certainly. And, you know, it's funny to this. So um, by the time I finished my Ph.D., I felt like Liz and I had like an unspoken um, mental connection where we could finish each other's sentences. Like I would see her start to say something and I could anticipate where it was going. And um, we could speak in this broken language and other people around would just kind of not understand where we were going, but there was, there, there was so much shared knowledge after about six years of working together, there, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of ground covered. And it's been interesting because once I, I went off and um, 
eventually got a faculty position. And during the first few years as a faculty member, um, you're supposed to kind of uh, do your own work and, and demonstrate your independence, that you haven't been riding the coattails of your supervisor through your graduate career, and, and you can do your own meaningful, interesting, rigorous research. And so, um, you know, the first few years of my faculty position, I didn't work with Liz, and it was it was like losing a limb in some ways. This person that you you know you really like working with, you have all these similar ideas with. Um, you know, you could still be friends and communicate, but you're not publishing papers together anymore, aside from finishing up old things. And I, I really miss that. And I think one of the joys of the last couple of years is circling back on a couple of papers that we um, have gotten to work with, uh, work on together again. And it's just it's you know in in some ways it's like an old friendship that you just you fall right back into like riding a bike you could just get back on it and so um which is true with other collaborators as well but it's kind of a, a special case with liz yeah and that's a good segue into the next topic that i, I want to pick your brain about so i guess yeah i get first year psychology or first uh like intro psychology um we get the 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 weird acronym so understanding like what, and I'll get you to explain that in a sec, uh, mostly because I can't actually remember the all, all five of those. I know that I remember like the Western educated and then I don't remember after that, but we'll give it to you. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, so just as far as the research side, I would imagine that over the course of your career from, I guess we'll say post undergrad uh, to now, you know, leading your own experiments and whatnot, that the, I guess the methodology or the uh, maybe principles behind experimentation has changed. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess, I, well, I'll start, start with, because uh, I gave you two pieces there. So start with weird and then explain that uh, to, to us. And then sure. as well as like the, the research method side. Sure. So um, the acronym WEIRD stands for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. Um, and where this acronym has been used and, and has gotten a lot of circulation and, and traction has been to point out that a substantial, in fact, an overwhelming majority of research in the social sciences and especially in psychology, I think where this, this has been most focused, is, is um, that when we make these claims of trying to understand how humans behave and how humans think and react, um, the overwhelming majority of evidence is drawn from these weird Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic samples. Um, and that's a problem because the when we look at people around the world, only 12% of the human population fit these criteria. And then we make these broad sweeping statements about human nature when we only have a evidence drawn from a small proportion. And so um, this original paper I think was published in brain and behavior sciences in 2010, actually by three faculty members who were at UBC. Um, and so that was at the time I was there for graduate school. So we heard about this in a lot of um, department meetings and what department presentations and whatnot. Um, but the original paper kind of cataloged the various ways in which weird samples um, are not only overrepresented, but the ways in which their perceptions of the world in, across an array of different dimensions differ from the ways in which the rest of the world operates. So for instance, one that has always stuck with me is just what, what we might think is, is 
uh, a human consistency like vision can be strongly swayed by the environment you grow up in. For instance, people who grow up in environments with corners tend to perceive distance more differently and are therefore susceptible to visual illusions um, in a different way than people who grow up in environments without these corners and therefore process depth differently. Um, and so these seemingly basic and, and ubiquitous features of, of human cognition, um, which we might take for granted as, as similar across all individuals, um, are not. And, and so when we extrapolate from that to how people come to see themselves and how people invest in relationships and what that might look like um, in, in some extra social ways that might be even more swayed by culture, we need to take a step back and reconsider um, how, when we make these claims about universal, universality, how well grounded are those claims? Do we actually have the data to support it? Um, and if not, how can we go about testing it? Or at least can we be mindful about the limitations of our data um, and be more cautious about these generalizations um, so that we can eventually come to a clearer and more accurate understanding of what human psychology and behavior is actually like. So I think the second part of your question is how has that kind of informed my research or has it changed over the last little while? Uh, that's interesting. I think the question might be, um, yeah, so it has definitely influenced my thinking and my research. Um, my early work on um, pro-sociality and well-being started when I was in graduate school. I remember, I think it was the summer before or the first semester when I started in graduate school, Liz and I met and kind of had a meeting to think about like, what are the ways in which people can spend their money to make them happy? And I went off and did this big lit review, this literature search to try to understand what are the key predictors of, of happiness? And at the top of the list was social relationships. There was evidence coming from so many different fields in so many different domains in so many different um, flavors of, of data collection and analysis that social relationships were one of, if not the key predictor of human happiness. And so we started to think, well, if people use their money in ways that might facilitate social relationships, maybe maybe that might be a, a, a route to greater well-being. And so we started designing these studies um, to investigate this question. And we ended up terming, uh, coming up with a new term called pro-social spending, where we started studying what are the emotional consequences of spending money on other people as opposed to yourself? Um, and we started testing this question in North America and primarily with students at UBC because that was a convenient sample that we could reach. Um, and so the study involved me going out in the morning hours on campus, giving undergraduates a small amount of money, either five or $20 to spend on either themselves or someone else. Who they spent on and how much money they got was randomly assigned, so they didn't get to pick. We we decided at random for them. Um, we told them to spend the money that day, and then we called them in the evening to see how they were feeling. And what we found among this sample of students was that people randomly assigned to spend money on others were significantly happier at the end of the day than people who spent the money on themselves. And it didn't matter how much they spent. Five or twenty dollars seemed to lead to relatively equivalent gains in in well being. Um, as opposed to spending on oneself. And this was exciting. It was it like it was a major feature in a paper we published that kind of came out around the year I defended my master's thesis. Um, but and this was a couple of years before the weird paper was published. But one of the most common questions we got was, you know, this is all well and good, but a student sample is a student sample, you know, five dollars, for instance, here was one small scale criticism of this is like five dollars might mean a lot to students, but spending that much, uh, you know, like an average, adults might spend more or less than that, probably more on other people. So, you know, how do we triangulate this? How do we 
um, how do we, how does this scale? How does this manifest in in larger um, and different populations? But you know, some of the heavier concerns were saying, you know, this is a sample of students who, by and large, have many privileges. Um, you know, many students attending a university like this may have some financial security in ways that most people around the world do not. Um, whether that be in North America and certainly in other places, and so. Here, people have the luxury of having this extra disposable income, and so it might feel very nice to be able to go out and do a kind deed for someone else. But what does that mean for people in other places who might be struggling to survive and pay their basic bills, um, or even just feed their family this month? And so, you know, we took that criticism to heart, and, and it was one of the guiding principles, and it just happened to coincide with around the, the time of the weird paper publication. Um, but I think the larger, the larger initiative really shaped a lot of my dissertation research, which was trying to understand how generalizable these findings that kind of made the that, that consisted of the backbone of my master's thesis, to what extent these same generalizable, these findings were generalizable in other, in other populations of interest. Uh, around the world um, through my dissertation work. And so through that, we started running, we looked at data from the Gallup World Poll that allowed us to look at responses from um, 136 countries and over 200,000 people around the globe. We saw a consistent pattern whereby people who had donated money to charity in the past month also reported higher levels of life satisfaction um, in rich and poor countries around the globe. And this was the Gallup World Poll data is important to know because it's uh, it's one of the most representative samples of planet Earth. It's not just wealthy people who have internet access and respond to surveys. This survey goes out in places um, like in rural India and will go to homes by random digit access to, to reach a, a, a representative sample. And so although those findings are correlational, they just happen to, this relationship just happens to appear, nothing is causing anything else, we can't be certain. Um, it was a nice and very generalizable sample. Um, and we followed up with experiments conducted in relatively rich and poor nations to try to see whether um, the same pattern of results may emerge in, in rich and poor countries. And generally speaking, it consistently did when we used a variety of different um, designs. And so um, that gave us some, uh, some evidence on which to, to claim that these emotional benefits we had seen in North America might not be limited to a student sample, but might be detected in other countries and cultures around the world um, when people live in very different ways. And even over the years since, I've been really interested in trying to understand how far this relationship or association might extend. And so beyond my dissertation work, um, I was able to partner with a wonderful friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Tanya Brush here at SFU. And with her, I went to Vanuatu um, and was able to run experiments in small scale traditional societies with individuals who had never um, left their village, for instance. Um, and there we found consistent results with both adults and youth. Um, and over the last couple of years, I've also been studying this question in ex-offenders and gang-involved youth. Not that these individuals come from non-weird environments, but that they also kind of provide this interesting test of the question. Even among individuals who have engaged in some relatively antisocial acts, can we still see these emotional rewards of giving? And we, we tend to see them emerge in, in most cases.
And so that's a long-winded response to your question. Um, but yeah, I think my, my research and my interest that the kind of guiding central question that I've been studying for over a decade is whether people feel good when they help others. And I think it started at this very small scale investigation um, with just a sample of 46 UBC undergraduate students. Um, but the question has kind of grown and multiplied and stretched in different ways, trying to understand whether this is um, a robust feature of the human psychology. And we've tried to, the, the, weird, the weird paper and this larger initiative to think about how generalizable our samples are really, really pushed it. Um, but so did, so too did the methodological revolution um, that has happened over the last couple of years too. And um, that doesn't, that hasn't necessarily changed the samples I have tried to reach, like the populations of interest, but it has changed and, and encouraged and, and improved, I think, the methodology of how we do the research that we do. Um, so that that might that might open another conversation, which uh, I'm happy to discuss too. I, don't, I was going to say I'll I'll ask you about the, the <laughs> methodology uh, part in a sec, but yeah, the one comment on that because um, it's interesting because you know, like you said, you you start your you know, kind of the, the experiment that started the, the career path that you ended up on, um, you know, with a relatively small sample size and a, a relatively specific sample group. And then mm -hmm. you do that. And what's interesting to me with, I guess, sort of the difference between spending on people, and to clarify that first uh, study, was that to spend money on people they knew? We didn't specify, so okay. it was spend. We told them it could be well um, in the pro social group. It would it could be like buy a gift for someone else or a donation to charity. Okay. So some people some people bought for complete strangers. Some people bought for dear friends, and some people made donations. We didn't um, we didn't direct it too closely. Right. Okay. And so that yeah, that's perfect then because that, that's kind of what gets me thinking is the fact that you can. And in this case, it's actually giving money, but you can give money to somebody you know, um, or, or strangers, but the positive effect that is observed, pretty reliable, which I guess most people would generally think that, well, if you're going to spend money on people that you know, you might see a higher um, rate of return on that positive emotion rather than just a stranger or not even a specific stranger, it's just going to a charity. So you don't even know who the actual recipient would be. But I guess the general uh, connection there is that it's it's the social tie. It, it's the social relationship. Yeah, I think I think that has a lot to do with it. So we've we've really tried to probe this question deeply over the years. Um, it seems like the emotional rewards of giving are greater when you give to strong as opposed to weak social ties. So giving, which doesn't necessarily uh, divide along the lines that you might originally think. So it's not inherently that your sibling is a strong social tie. I mean, if, if it's a person you consider near and dear, then, then they very much are. But if you have an estranged brother or sister, then perhaps they might not be. And so it's, it's more about, I think, um, emotional intimacy or feelings of closeness than it is just about like um, proximity or, or like genealogy or anything that, that is, serves as a proxy for it. Um, but by and large, yeah, giving to strong social ties, people with whom you feel close and, and connected to leads to, in our work, um, to, it leads to some greater emotional rewards than spending on more distant social ties. At least that's what we've seen in, in um, some recall-based data. Um, but it's, I think it's important to know that um, in some subsequent studies, we've really tried to um, test what I think might be 
the purest form, if you will, of, of this pro-sociality piece, um, which involves giving to charity, um, giving to a worthy cause, but where you, you don't know who the recipient is, they won't know who you are. And the reason that's important is that um, you, you won't ever get praise or gratitude or or any kind of potential return, right? So you could imagine a cynic might claim that one of the reasons giving feels good is because now you've given to someone else and they're indebted to you and will one day return the favor. Um, but in one, in a couple studies we've now run using what we call our goodie bag paradigm, um, we ask we bring, we usually bring people into the lab. They earn a couple of dollars for participating in an early form in this early part of the study. And then we tell them, you know, there's this money is theirs. In one condition, they're given the option to use this money to buy a goodie bag of treats like chocolate, candy, et cetera, for themselves. And then they report how they're feeling. In another condition, we give them the opportunity to buy a goodie bag again, um, but the goodie bag will be donated to a sick kid at a local children's hospital. So they will never get to give the gift. Our lab donates it on their behalf. The, the sick kid, which we actually do go ahead and donate the goodie bag. So, but we never say it's from Marcus De Silva at SFU. So you're not gonna be able to follow up with him. It's just this goodie bag that was received. Um, and so we do, and, and in fact, another key feature of this design is that nobody else knows you've chosen to do a kind thing. So um, all of the all of these decisions are kind of shrouded in, in a paper trail, which effectively means that nobody in the room other than you at the time of making this decision knows that you've done a kind deed. And the reason that's important is because uh, a cynic might also say that even if you can't get a kickback from the recipient, you might look good in the eyes of others who then kind of trust you more or at least hold you in, in good favor or good standing. Um, but in this design, we, we make it a, a mystery. So nobody knows you've done this kind act except for you. And even in this context, still uh, where people are not giving to a strong social tie, nobody knows about their generosity and certainly not the recipient, even here still, we find these emotional benefits of, of generosity over buying the same items for oneself. And I think that's important because I think it tests a pretty pure form of generosity, um, which kind of pulls away these extra what researchers call confounds, these alternative explanations for why giving may feel good. Well, and then it seems like in, in that way, you start to chip away and get closer to what sounds like a fundamental aspect of human nature. Yeah, I, I, you know what, I, I, in some ways, it, it was lucky happenstance. So I think you're right. Um, I actually think some of the probably the most primitive forms of pro-sociality probably started with kin caregiving. So like caring for your kids. Um, but because it's, you know, we have processes in place to protect us from being exploited um, too frequently. It, it's we probably tend to generalize this principle, right? So people who were able to care for their families and then care for the people in their environment were more likely to have supportive relationships that took that took care of them. And so I think that's one of the reasons humans have evolved to find giving rewarding. Um, but the other cool feature about this, and, and um, I think food sharing was probably one of the most basic forms of human prosociality. And I also think a sick child is is one of the most um, clear-cut deserving targets that we could think of. And so I wish I remember the logic of kind of selecting, maybe I was, maybe I was very theoretically informed and as when we originally designed this study, but now looking back at it, I feel like either 
either through a lot of deep thought or through serendipity, we landed on this design that I think really does hit a lot of the key features of, of what a, a pure and maybe very historic um, or, you know, like key, key idea, a key manifestation and, and, and um, context of giving would have looked like would be to, you know, a, a, a needy child. Um, I don't think that's a charity that many people take issue with and also the food sharing, which I think taps into some of the most um, basic form of basic forms of giving. When you went to uh, pronounce it Vanuatu. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know it's, it's funny. You think the words are going to come out right. And then you start, going, <laughs> oh boy, that's not bad. Okay. But we got it right. Yeah. Um, so when you traveled there, the, um, cause I'm not at all familiar with that place. Um, but culturally, what are they, what, what, what give the, the scoop there? Yes. So Vanuatu. Yeah. When I told my parents I was going to Vanuatu, they had no idea what I was talking about. And I, I showed them on a map. It's it's a nation made up of a number of islands in the South Pacific. It's very close to Fiji and New Zealand. Um, so it's located there. Um, and Dr. Tanya Brush, my friend and colleague, who's a cross-cultural developmental psychologist, was very intentional about setting up her lab there. The reason being that um, she she fostered relationships with various communities there, um, some of whom intentionally reject a lot of Western cultures and, and education set, styles and settings. And so um, this village in particular, or the collection of villages we visited, um, they have their, li their, their lives and their lifestyle differ pretty substantially from ours here in, in Vancouver. So for instance, there's no electricity, there's no running water. Um, while I was there visiting, I was in one of, I think one of two buildings that were cement built um, that were there from like the Peace Corps from, I don't know, a decade earlier. One is the school that is a cement based building. The other is basically like four walls with a tin roof. That was, that was our bedroom. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they eat food that is grown in their local gardens. Um, most houses there are built from natural materials. Some of the villages reject Western education and so they don't send their kids to school at all. Some of the villages had like a kindergarten set up, which is, I, I mean, I, the, the, they are not speaking English so I couldn't evaluate what exactly was going on um, in the classroom, but the kids did meet for a couple hours a day. Um, but the, the basic idea is that the lifestyle is very different than ours and might be more similar to actually how many of our ancestors lived hundreds of years ago um, with collective farming um, and no electricity and no running water and, and so on. And so we felt like this was a really appropriate way to kind of strategically pick cultural contexts that were quite drastically different from one another. Um, having worked in North America several times before, um, here we were going to a very different place to see if the same or similar results may emerge in this, like I said, drastically different cultural context. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the the ancestral link there, because that when you said food sharing, that's kind of what got me thinking there, which was that's probably a pretty good place to test that because um, that I read a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger, and it's a it's a really good book. It's it's not a long book. It's you can get through it pretty quickly. Um, but one of the things that they that he discusses in there is a lot of pro social uh, behaviors and social interactions and mm -hmm. what sort of a touch of a segue from, from your work, but the, on the inverse of the benefits of the pro-social aspect, they also treat 
um, if you violate that, that is treated very harshly because it's not only, uh, you know, so to take food or to hide food from, you know, not sharing it, that would be treasonous. And you could actually be, you know, removed from the tribe that you're in, which would likely lead to your death. So it's certainly a, a violation of that sort also, um, how am I trying to say this? I guess it's reflective of the, on the inverse side, it's reflective of how positively they feel about it. Because if you violate that, it's treated so harshly on the negative side. And I guess you can kind of look at it and be like, oh, okay, there's a bit of a connection there. Um, and, it, and what was the, the study, like the, the actual method of the study that you conducted over there? Yeah, so I guess the first point is just to say those are really interesting complementary mechanisms to facilitate prosociality, right? Like within the individual, people feel good when they give, and that's a nice carrot, if you will. Um, but the stick on the other end is, is perhaps these social repercussions and maybe even internalized guilt and shame, guilt or shame that might come from violating these expected cultural norms that are put in place to promote prosociality, um, which, which is really critical for group survival and functioning. So um, really interesting. Um, so what were the what were the details of the studies run in Vanuatu? Um, there were two. So I was there for about three weeks. It was one of the most um, challenging and rewarding set of studies that I've ever run. Um, it involved so much prep work before we went and then so many details. You remember how I mentioned like project management is an overlooked skill? I felt <laughs> like this pushed me to my max because um, it was interesting because Tanya was pregnant at the time. And so we got to Vanuatu, we landed in Port Vila, which was the main city. And then we had a few days there to translate materials and buy a couple things and get ourselves organized. But then we took a, a plane to a small island and then like hopped a ride with strangers to this village in the middle of nowhere. Um, and Tanya was pregnant and malaria is prevalent and she could not take malaria medication. So she introduced me to the chief spent the day setting us up and took off because <laughs> she had to leave this malaria risky place because she, she, she couldn't be around. Um, anyway, so there was a lot to figure out. Everything from like how to get our solar panels to give us power so that we could record the videos that we needed to record. And anyway, it was, it was challenging and wonderful in many, many ways. Um, but the two studies we ran, one was an adult focused study and one was a child focused study. And, and they both ended up being published in the same paper um, that came out in 2015. But the, the adult study basically involved um, me training a local researcher, Lija, who uh, we rented out a home from one of the villagers. So we had like a quiet testing place. So we were sitting in this hut. Um, Licha would invite the individual in one at a time. So one, one um, villager would come in at a time. They would give, a, I think, a base rating of how they felt in the moment. And then they were told that they had earned a small sum, which I think was 10 vatu, which is basically the equivalent about half a day's wage um, that they could use to purchase some treats that were laid out in three bowls in front of them. Um, one set of treats was, I can't remember exactly what they were. I think they were like Mentos or cookies and then another one. Anyway, there were three options laid out in front and they got to pick which bowl they wanted or they could choose to keep the money for themselves um, and pick that up in about a week. Now, like before, like we had used this goodie bag paradigm in North America, um, people were randomly assigned to one of two conditions. In one condition, if they bought the items, they were for themselves. And in one condition, in the pro-social condition, if they bought the items, they had to be given to someone else. They couldn't eat them themselves. 
So by and large, almost everybody purchased the items, especially because they were treats that were not available in this village that were very hard to find. Um, most people in this village never left the village. One or two had left the island, but that was it. Um, so people were pretty excited about these treats. And then once they had, they had collected the goods, either for themselves or someone else, they rated how they were feeling by pointing to, a, I think it was an, a 10 or 11 rung ladder. And they showed us how they, how they were feeling about several key emotions right then and there. Um, and so what we found was consistent with what we had seen before. So even after traveling halfway around the world and designing this new experiment um, that Lija basically ran by herself because it was run in the mother tongue, I couldn't do this. Um, we found that people who bought these or picked these goodies for uh, someone else reported feeling happier right after than people who bought the same items for themselves. Now, obviously, we had to relax a couple of the stringent paradigm features that we had used in North America. So as I mentioned before, one of the um, really important features we used in North America was this paper trail so that nobody knew whether you were doing a kind um, or personal, uh, personally beneficial act. Here, we couldn't do that, right? Legia needed to set this up because many of the villagers were illiterate. And so we couldn't just hand over a paper questionnaire and say, have at it. We needed to walk them through the paradigm. Um, so we had to relax the relax a couple things, but I think by and large, you know, the benefits outweighed the cost dramatically by being able to test this question um, in another part of the world. So that was the adult study. The child study was um, uh, an updated version of this paper we had published in 2012 with toddlers just under the age of two in, um, in Vancouver. And so here, when we ran this in Vanuatu, we needed to expand the age group because the villages are so small. There are like 100, village, 100 people in each village. There was no way we could recruit 20 kids under the age of two. There were maybe like four of them. So what we ended up doing was expanding the age range up to, I think, kids who were five, although age was a hard thing to get at there because unlike here where everybody memorizes their birthday and knows exactly how old they are, there, most kids are born in the village, not in the hospital, and so there's no birth certificate. And if there is a birth certificate, people don't just carry it around with them. I was sitting across the table from a woman who looked, give or take my age, and said she was, you know, somewhere in her 50s, like guessed she was in her 50s. And at the time I was there, I was in my late 20s or early 30s. And so I was like, maybe, maybe time is perceived differently. Maybe, maybe people just, anyway, long story short, we think we had people who are between the ages of two and five participate in this study based on their parents' accounts and birth, birth certificates when we had it. And kids came into the school with a parent or a caregiver, and they were taken, after a warm-up, they were taken through this um, brief experiment where um, they were introduced to a puppet who they were told likes treats. The kid was given at a series of edible treats. They were fruit-flavored Mentos, which again, were very hard to, like you would not normally see in this village. And then over the course of um, several minutes, kids were asked to engage or, or view three key phases. So they were asked to um, watch as the experimenter gave a treat to the puppet, who then ate it enthusiastically. They were asked to give one of the experiments treats to the puppet, and the puppet responded in the same way, enthusiastically eating the treat. And, and in a final phase, uh, kids were asked to give one of their own treats to the puppet, and again, the puppet ate it in an enthusiastic fashion. Um, and I should say that these last three phases came in in random order. So even though I said the last one was last, it actually wasn't. So they, they came in counterbalanced order. Um, and while kids were completing this act, what we did, these, these five phases, we had a video camera hidden from view um, that tried to capture the kids' expressions. 
uh, as they as they participated and later recoded when I returned back to Vancouver, we later um, coded their facial expressions for smiles to indicate how happy they were feeling. And what we found in Vanuatu was the same as what we had seen in Vancouver with these toddlers, which was um, two key things. First, kids smiled more when giving the treats away to the puppet than when receiving treats themselves, uh, which is really cool, I think. But what I thought was even more exciting was that kids smiled more when giving away their own treat than when giving away an identical treat that didn't belong to them. Um, and the reason why I think that's particularly interesting is because it suggests that uh, generosity might be especially rewarding when it's costly. And that might mean, that might be especially the context when we need it, right? Um, that's why people may have evolved to feel good. Um, it's because it's a difficult thing to do. And so we get this positive kickback when we do. Well, and I think it also speaks to like generally like sacrifice as well. Cause you know, in a way, I mean, I, I guess my um, interest in sacrifice has come uh, at like personal, um, for the record I'm, I'm training for. So just kind of talk about like from a, a physical training workout perspective, um, the, the idea of that sacrifice, but it's true because then when you get to a certain point, then it feels really rewarding and then that's internalized, but then through, through your study, it's also, it's externalized. You're giving it to someone else and you get that immediate mm -hmm. uh, reaction. But I want to ask you uh, just like generally speaking, um, mm -hmm. it's not very often that someone from uh you know a western society gets to travel to a place that is shockingly different um as far as the way that they structure their society but so i just kind of want to ask you like did you get to observe just the people kind of hanging out and just like outside of the study i'm just wondering what that experience was like for you it was it was it was fantastic it was wonderful i mean i spent three weeks in the village and very few people spoke english and so i mean i didn't get to have deep you know conversations but there was a lot of friendly exchange even without um discussion and language uh, but there were some really humorous moments um, and some very touching moments so for instance i remember one of the first days we arrived the chief was showing me around and there was this one kid playing with a machete in the field and um, I was like, oh my gosh, that looks so dangerous. Anyway, long story short, the, the kid starts crying and I'm like, oh my goodness, they've hurt themselves. And here I am, they think I'm a doctor and I'm gonna be able to help. And so the kid starts like screaming as I get closer and closer. And I'm like, oh my God, I know nothing. And I terrified of this. Anyway, long story short, the machete was completely blunt. It was like the side of a table. The kid was not playing with a sharp machete. The reason they were screaming was because they'd never seen anyone as pale as me. And this kid thought I was a ghost. And so there were some cultural shocks, um, but it like, you know, the, the kids were so lovely. They would come up and play with me. They would bring food. Tanya had set it up in such a beautiful way that like the families were almost hosting us. I was there with um, one then honor student who ended up and is now a graduate student, um, Hillary. And uh, we were staying in this in the same um, concrete building. And so every morning, one of the families would come and bring us breakfast. Um, while we were there because we didn't have the supplies nor the capability to cook. And um, so we got to know and like exchange smiles and the kids would come play and it was really lovely. Um, and I also, you know, it was really humbling. It was, it was, it was, you know, the day we arrived, everybody stopped what they were doing and did a welcome ceremony. We got these beautiful necklaces um, that were welcome and we were able to see some traditional dances. Um, yeah, it, it, it was really amazing to see just how all the families took really good care of one another. Um, and it was, you know, from 
it, it shows you how it, or it was revealing to me to think about how, you know, we think in North America, we're, we're, we're so lucky and all these things that are um, so essential for our well-being are at our fingertips. And going there, my immediate reaction was thinking, you know, even, I, I mean, I think I, I, I don't think I would have ever said that like TV and Wi-Fi and all those things are critical for our well-being. I, I, I wasn't that uh, unaware, but I, you know, one thing that I was worried that like, there isn't always access to clean water and these kids don't always have access to, to medicine. And so, you know, part of me was thinking that there might be some significant challenges to living there in ways that might really influence the well-being of the, 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 the villagers. Um, yet what we saw in our data, and it was very clear, is that these individuals were reporting higher levels of happiness than we typically see in Canada in the World Happiness Report. Um, people were just reporting being quite happy most of the time. And it was, you know, when you take a step back and think about it, these many of these people are living in very close proximity to one another with like their friends and family. They're living in very healthy ways. They're in touch with the environment. They have all these strong social relationships. And so, you know, it was it was a real life reminder of like, how do we prioritize the things that are important for our well-being? And, you know, in retrospect, I shouldn't be surprised, but um, when I came, you, you'd think that even having studied questions like this for 10 years, I was still caught off guard by just the simplicity and the the meaning that, that, that all these connections can provide. When you said that uh, you asked the participants to rate their happiness, like as the control, like just sitting right there before doing anything. I, in my head, I was thinking, I'm like, I bet you these people are ranking at like a seven or eight. They're just, they're just doing good, you know, for the most part. I think it was even happier than that, which is <laughs> amazing, right? Because like, at least for life evaluation reports, I think in Canada, it's usually somewhere around seven. And I mean, this wasn't, the, the scale wasn't exactly the same. And so take it with a grain of salt, but like even we were almost at what we would call a ceiling effect whereby people were almost always using the top end of the scale. Um, so that was really interesting. And the second feature that was interesting is even, even while people were almost always using the high end of the scale, we were still able to see these differences across condition, suggesting that pro-sociality might still have um, this potential benefit. Yeah, I, yeah, tangent, but like I was on uh, the, I don't have a, a personal Instagram account anymore. Uh, I just have like the, you know, the podcast ones and, and whatnot. And I was on there and like, I was just like, oh God, this stuff is just, it's so, I, I, I bitch about social media like all the time on this podcast, but it's just like, oh God, you know, you think about how chaotic it is all the time. And, and then like, just generally speaking, you think about how chaotic, just general chaos. There's a lot of noise, you know, just living, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and what, you know, Western, I mean, even Eastern too. I mean, like anywhere, like big cities and, you know, that, that kind of thing, you know, it's just the hustle and bustle aspect. And then to go to a, a place like, you know, Vanuatu, where it's, it's so simplistic in, in the best sense, you know, I don't mean simplistic as a dig. I mean, that is a, mm -hmm. that is a compliment. Um, yeah. It just must be awesome to be a part of that and get a different perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I, but you're right. I think I, I think it cuts out perhaps a lot of the needless noise um, that social media and a lot of that uh, might bring. But I think there, I don't know if I would say life is simple in that a lot of these folks are worried. For instance, Vanuatu is at huge risk for climate change because they're an island in the middle of the South Pacific. And so um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that their lives, and I don't think you were implying this, but I wouldn't say that their lives are easy. Like, I think there are a lot of challenges um, <laughs> that, are, uh, that are present um, and, and probably, you know, quite salient and, and thought about 
on a regular enough basis. But I think you're right. I think a lot of the hassle and frustration and jealousy and uh, noise that we might invite into our lives here for some reason, thinking that it's beneficial um, might not be, at least I, I don't think the same noise and clutter um, at least didn't resonate with me while I was there in my short stint. Well, and you think about, you know, the problems of like, you having to find, you know, clean water and stuff like that. Like the, the, there's challenges and like, you got to hunt to find food. You can't go to a, a Costco and buy a 10 pack of steaks and take it home, you know? So there's uh, mm -hmm. there's uh, yeah, it's very reminiscent of like that ancient, not even necessarily that ancient, you know, you go back a couple hundred years, you'd be seeing that, but yeah, just that way, just a very different way of life, you know, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, let me ask you about the, uh, we, we alluded to it earlier, uh, but the, as far as the methodology goes, um, cause you mentioned that sort of, this is a recent thing in, in the last couple of years. Um, so yeah, just elaborate on that. Sure. So um, I'll give I'll give my take on it, and I suspect that there are lots of people who might be able to add to this conversation. But um, several years ago now, I think it may almost be I don't know. I think it was in 2015 the original paper was published, but I don't remember off the top of my head. I think there there was one year where a lot of really important papers were published within within close proximity to one another, um, and they all kind of raised really uh, important warning flags, I think, for, for psychology as a discipline, but also just more broadly for science. Um, one paper that I think was a real catalyst um, came out in, I don't know if this is in chronological order, I don't think it is, but I'll, this is, this is how I've kind of consolidated a lot of information in my head. One of the papers that I think was a really early warning alarm was a paper by Daryl Bem and colleagues that came out in one of our fields kind of flagship top journals called JPSB, um, published a series of studies showing evidence for extra, e for ESP, for like detection of things before they have occurred, um, which to date, there is no metaphysical principle that can explain. Um, and, and so, I mean, you can debate about the specifics, but I think one of the reasons this paper was so interesting and caught a lot of attention was because, you know, the, the authors played by all the rules of how one would normally publish findings. Um, they provided an incremental series, like a, a series of studies that built incrementally on one another. They demonstrated what appeared to be evidence for this causal effect. They tested conditions in which it occurred and which it didn't. And, and it went through the peer review process and was published in one of our field's top journals. And this led a lot of people to say, if this passes the muster for our field's top journals, maybe we need to rethink how we do science. Um, and so that for some people was, was, was an early kind of consideration. Um, around the same time, I think a few years prior, there was an influential paper called False Positive Psychology published um, in another one of our field's top journals called Psychological Science. And this paper, um, it wasn't a dig at positive psychology in particular, it was a dig on psychology basically demonstrating that um, we in, in the field of psychology, there is enough flexibility allowed for researchers who are trying to, to, to explore a question to make judgment calls. The problem is, is that researchers are humans. They're motivated by what is going on in the world around them. And, and our field is incentivized to find new, sexy, exciting findings, not to repeat what has been done before in, in a predictable 
obvious manner. And so with these incentives that come from publication and grants and jobs, um, people might be enticed, even with the best of intentions, to not report all the flexibility and all the decisions they've made in their in their data analysis and data collection to a point where um, almost almost any data set can be manipulated and presented as strong evidence for a finding when in fact that wasn't the case. Um, when if anybody were to look back, perhaps with a more skeptical, clear eye, um, there wouldn't be evidence for, for the, 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 the proposed um, question at hand. Um, so that was a really influential paper. Um, and, and not only was it an intriguing argument, there was like a, a, a really wonderful presentation of the data kind of showing how how easily this can occur. There were also papers that came, that published that were published around the same time, just showing um, when people are asked to anonymously report to what extent they engage in these flexible research practices. Some of them, all the way going to outright fraud, um, people are doing it way more than we might think. Um, and finally, the last paper that I think was was probably one of the most damning and, and, and has probably had some of the largest repercussions and waves is this paper published by the Open Science Collaboration. I think this one came out in 2015, but basically it was a collection of hundreds of psychologists from various labs around the world who sought out to try, who, who combined efforts together, trying to replicate papers that I think were published in top journals in the year of 2020. 2010, excuse me. Um, and basically, there are lots of ways to understand whether a, a, a finding replicates what has been seen before. But even by some of the most generous interpretations, the replication rate was was alarmingly low, I think in the ballpark of 40 to 50% of the time. Now, if the initial results were wrong due to chance alone, we shouldn't see anywhere near that low of a replication rate. And so the authors were, you know, very clear and kind in their reporting. I think they, they didn't point fingers at anyone. They basically just said like, the, there are lots of reasons this could have occurred, but, you know, we need to take a close look at what's going on. If, if, if these are, if foundational studies or things that we're publishing in our top journals as, as, as you know, potential facts or potential um, guidance for where we want to go are not being replicated, maybe we need to think about why that is. And so over the last little while, I think as a result of several of these key papers, but also just a broader conversation around these questions, um, psychology has really um, and psychology and many other sciences. So I should say, although these uh, a lot of these investigations at least through my eyes, have kind of stemmed from um, psychologists who are doing work in this domain. I think the conversations apply to many other fields, like cancer research is also doing these investigations to see what what percentage of their um, what percentage of studies replicate, and so are other fields. And so I think um, although psychology has been some, some have um, pointed fingers by saying we're unique in this regard, um, a lot of this navel gazing, I actually think it's going on in, in many fields. And I think it's for the better because these concerns I think have really pushed researchers um, in ways to, to adopt new practices that are really increasing what we might consider the evidentiary value of the work that we do. So um, some, of the, some of the biggest changes as I see are one, um, a push for much larger samples. The reason for that is small samples give really flimsy estimates of what's going on in the population. Um, a sample of 10 people, you can, you, you know, you can 
compute an average, but that can be strongly swayed by just one, one individual. If you have a, an average based on a thousand people, um, then you're getting a, a much tighter, more realistic estimate of what's going on. So larger samples has been a, a big change that is now required or, or considered in, in, by many researchers. Um, another new feature that is going on is the sharing of materials. So people, researchers are now often encouraged and many proactively share their questionnaires, their coding schemes, whatever they used for collecting their data so that um, future researchers don't need to go digging and looking and engage in personal communication to be able to try to replicate a study. A final version of these materials are posted so that they're kind of available in the public record. Along similar lines, researchers are now sharing their data files, which allows other researchers with related or similar or identical questions to come in and just examine these data. Now, obviously, precautions are taken to make sure these, these responses are anonymized so as not to breach confidentiality or you know, give away um, personal, potentially concerning information, but it's available. And I think that's also been another step. Um, and perhaps I think one of the biggest changes and, and revolutions in this regard is um, the adoption of what's called pre-registration, where researchers are now encouraged to, to um, in advance delineate some of the main um, consequential decisions they'll make in collecting and analyzing their data. And so there are various flavors of pre-registration. Some are very broad and, um, you know, for early work where a researcher will, will pre-commit to their intended sample size, what their key conditions are, what their main outcome variables are, um, and what they predict. And other pre-registrations will go down to like very specific questions, like tell us exactly who you're gonna exclude and why, like what are the exact criteria for exclusions? How exactly are you gonna compute your outcome variables? How will you handle your data if it's skewed? Things like that. Um, and so usually people pick a pre-registration that is um, appropriately suited to their level of precision, like where they are in, the, in their research, uh, in their understanding of the research question. So for new ideas, they might have like a looser, more flexible, or at least, um, more streamlined pre-registration, whereas people who've been studying the same thing for 20 years might be able to, with a lot of precision, answer uh, very specific questions. Um, but this is important because it, it effectively binds the researcher to a specific set of intentions, and therefore one cannot later say, in retrospect, I had planned to exclude this condition, or I had planned to exclude these individuals, when in fact they had not pre-committed to these decisions. And so pre-registrations are posted online, they're date and timestamp, they're, they're publicly visible when made publicly visible. And the, the point is to increase transparency. Um, and I think they've gone a long way. They're also just really helpful in getting a research team within a research team on board to make sure everybody's thinking the exact same thing. Um, and I think one reason pre-registration originally got a lot of pushback, but I think now most people are, are uh, realizing this wasn't perhaps a limitation is just um, a lot of researchers who engage in very difficult data collection feel like if, if I've spent years or hundreds of thousands of dollars collecting these data, I want to understand them and analyze them in, in any way I can. Um, and I don't think a pre-registration precludes that. It effectively just you know forces a researcher to determine what are their predictions in advance. Um, and if you want to do additional analyses, that's completely fine. You just can't state that they were determined in advance when they weren't. And so it, it delineates this um, exploratory versus confirmatory analysis, which I think goes a long way in helping us get a clear sighted view of, of how the evidence stacks up in support or against uh, a finding.
the last month or so, uh, I've been listening to so my favorite podcast uh, to listen to is Jocko podcast. And one of the things, so it's a primarily it's a military podcast and uh, history as well. And one of the things that he's been discussing lately, uh, one of the issues with the Vietnam War, when you compare it to World War II, was that guys would get, cons- you know, you go shipped off to Vietnam and you would do your tour and then you would leave and a new guy would come and take your place. And that was at the lowest level to the higher levels. When you compare that to World War II, that wasn't really the same thing. You basically got in and you went home when the war was won. So that could be, you know, several years of, of fighting and, and making decisions. And one of the things that they observed in Vietnam was that the guys in charge would be motivated on making their mark. And so their professional, uh, the prof- you know, because I mean, anybody, you're, you're in a professional occupation, you want to do well at your job. And so, you know, maybe you might be motivated to make decisions that maybe aren't serving to the great aren't as serving to the greater mission but they make you look good and so you kind of alluded to that and and like why psychology and really any area of practice wouldn't be any different which is like you want to be a good psychologist you want to do you want to make your mark you want to have you want to find those studies and those findings that are you know the, the sexy headline stuff and so maybe you have you you go a little bit more lateral on the approach or you know kind of i mean and like you said you know it goes all the way from like actually being like fraudulent which i'm sure is you know the my definitely the minority and then you know there's a there's a scale you know maybe yeah just kind of fudging it a bit or exaggerating or whatever um so it's yeah it's mm-hmm. interesting to hear that from a from a professional setting how that can, because that can affect the findings um, and, you know, anytime there's money involved, which if that's what you do for a living, that's what it would be no different than cancer research where, you know, you have to get grants and those that can be some, we're talking huge money at that point. So, it, I, you know, I think ultimately I, I like your point, which is it, it's all under the, um, it's all for the purpose of ensuring the reliability of, of the findings. And then in your field, as it relates to psychology, sounds like a pretty good thing to me. Yeah, I think I, I think it has really improved um, the quality of research that is now being published. It's it's probably it's slowed things down. It's made things more expensive mm-hmm. and, and more thoughtful. Um, but I, I don't think those are in I don't think all of those are inherently bad things. I mean, I look back to some of our early work. I think I mentioned this in passing. You know, our our first study, our first experiment really on pro-social spending was 46 people across four conditions. Right. Um, there's no way that would be published now. <laughs> um, now we run studies with, you know, 300, 400, uh, 2,000 people per condition. Um, and, and we pre-register our studies to commit in advance. Like, here's how many participants we want to recruit. Here's the conditions they're going to be randomly assigned to. Here's how we're going to... Um, in fact, over the last couple of years, it was published last year. Um, my lab and a bunch of colleagues and collaborators, we um, we we wanted to do just that. We wanted to revisit some of our critical paradigms for the pro-social spending research and, and put it under the scrutiny of these new best practice methods. Um, and I've got to admit, interpersonally, it, I mean, it was a terrifying experience. This work that I had spent over a decade on, you know, this was a real litmus test of, you know, when we, when we 
put this under, under the microscope, do, do the findings pan out as we had seen in the past? Um, and so, you know, in, in a lab study run across UBC and SFU, we recruited over 700 students for a goodie bag study, way larger than any one we had ever run in person before. Um, and the effect came out as we had predicted using pre-registration and all the best practices. Um, we saw some clear um, evidentiary support. It was clear evidence and support of pro-social spending leading to higher levels of happiness than people spending on themselves. Then we ran two online studies using a recollection paradigm, and the first one didn't. And we were, you know, there we had, I think, close to a thousand people per condition, and we didn't see evidence that people who recall the time they spent on others were happier than people who recall the time they spent on themselves. We thought it might have something to do with the fact that people weren't really engaged with the task. Because <laughs> when we looked at people's memories, people, some people wrote like two words, like bought birthday or got coffee. Um, so we ran a, we, we contacted the journal and said, can we run one more study? We're going to pre-register it. And here's what we think matters. They said, sure. And so we ended up recruiting a, almost, I think one person shy of five, 5,200 people to test this again. Um, and this time we, you know, we recruited a sample that has shown high levels of engagement in the past. We, we made, we asked people to write longer things than just two words. Um, and lo and behold, we found the effect again, but it was much smaller than we had seen in past work. But I think that's probably the best estimate because no study had ever been that large before. And so what we had seen before was probably an inflated effect size and here was probably a more realistic one. And so, and just as my research um, path and, and program of research has changed over the years as a function of like generalizability concerns, I think my work has also changed as a function of, of best practices over the years. Um, and I, you know, I, I hope that is it's it's giving me confidence and I hope it's it's helping to build this cumulative science um, and 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 provide meaningful insight into this question. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking like the fact that you, I mean, you actually answered the question before I uh, had to had to ask it to you, which was like, how is the how has this affected uh, the work? And and so, yeah, you going back and and um, independently uh, with with the teams that you put together, like just, hey, let's just go see like how it stacks up. But holy cow, that must have been terrifying because, you know, like you said, like this is what I built my career on. And then. Also, just generally, I mean, you, you have that emotional attachment to that work, you know, so I mean, to go yeah. back, it's like, oh, geez. Yeah. And, you know, you try, you know, we're, we're human. And so, you know, I try not to think of this effect as mine. You know, there are lots of people who study this question and in similar areas. And I try to be careful in papers that I work on that it's not our theory, our data. It's like the theory, the data. Um, and you don't want your research, your, your, your value as a researcher to be tied up in a particular finding, because I think ultimately researchers are after the truth, not just proving the existence of an effect. Um, that being said, you know, it, it, it is hard to, you know, this is something I, I've worked on for a very long time. And so I had a lot of emotional and personal investment in the question, but I, I think it's more important for science and, and for me and my collaborators to get it right than to, you know, like to, to meaningfully ask the question rather than just say we were right all along. I mean, we don't, we don't move ahead as a science if we're just confirming our, um, what we think is right. We have to actually move ahead after the truth. So, but yeah, it was, I remember my heart pounding when I ran that analysis. <laughs>
Well, and, and that's an excellent lesson to learn as a researcher is that, and, and that's one that like spans your whole career, you know, and, and in anyone's career, really, like, you know, whether you're running podcasts or, you know, conducting psychological research, like not attaching, um, you have to detach in a way. It, it's, this is the work, this is the research. And I think also you you have to limit that emotional involvement because it can cloud your judgment. And, and like, as you said, you, you know, you're researching the truth, not, you know, and sometimes the answer, you know, may not be the one that you wanted, but that's, right. the, that's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think if you, you miss the chance to learn new things if you're not uh, looking. Um, but yeah, I think it's actually, I think, I think you're right. I think it does resonate. I think it's a larger lesson. Like we're, we're more than our work. Um, I, I feel like I say that usually to students as they're about to write a final exam and terrified that their work <laughs> is going to be determined on account of their final exam performance, but it's a helpful lesson to remind myself of too, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, those. And it's funny, I, I remember too, because even in, uh, I guess for the, the, how many classes do you teach at SFU, uh, social psychology? I, I teach intro to social psych, and depending on the year, um, I sometimes teach an undergraduate class on the science of happiness or a grad class on research methods for happiness. Yeah. So it depends. We start. We, we cycle through. And, and for those, the the format for the um, like the the calculating the grade. It's usually like I guess from from my memory, it's like three or four. You got like a couple midterms and a final, and maybe some assignments or participation, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, because in law, um, at least the law school I went to, hundred percent finals every class for three years, and wow. so. When you're talking about like, oh, you know, your worth is not the number. It's like, <laughs> oh man, we should, I, I know lots of people who would have uh, got great value from hearing that. We probably should have done better sticking up for, for each other on that one. But, uh, you know, then you always joke like, yeah, no, that's, yeah, you dummy, you got the low mark, right? Yeah, that's a good thing to tease people about, I guess. But uh, <laughs> we tease rough, we tease rough. Um, tangent. Um, <laughs> But as far as the, so I, we, you know, we've talked about the, the work that you've done and I guess a little more recently going back and reevaluating the work that uh, kind of started your career and just kind of currently, uh, what are you involved in right now? Well, uh, a lot. And um, <laughs> I guess I like it that way because I've realized as a researcher, one thing that really energizes me is the collaborations I get to pursue with other people. I've noticed, um, it didn't take me long to notice, but I guess it just keeps, projects that I'm working on by myself are those that are quickly put aside and, and, and linger um, with little progress and probably just die. And so I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of pursuing these questions with, with um, other people I respect and admire and, and like to work with. So um, some of those, many of those are with graduate students in my lab that I really enjoy working with. Um, so some of those questions are trying to understand if and how we can promote prosociality in um, in schools and in um, other youth focused programs, um, in other work with another graduate student, I'm trying to understand um, if prosociality has benefits during very difficult life transitions and might be a helpful way to buffer as, as people enter new stages of their life, like transition to university, recover from addiction, become a parent, um, retire from work or from athletics. Um, so I really am in, excited and intrigued by a lot of those questions. Um, I've also been like a, one pet project of mine that I'm just, I'm excited about, but has not um, been able to pick up 
as, as with enough energy lately is trying to understand if people have what I call pro-social fantasies, um, like ideas and dreams about helping other people, um, but in ways they haven't been able, well, they may or may not have had a chance to kind of enact. Um, I think there's a lot of negative, um, I think he, people are complex, but there's a, there's a narrative that people are very selfish, um, careless, creatures that don't care so much for other people. And, and certainly in some contexts that is true. I think there's both a pro-social and an anti-social side to most people. Um, but one thing that really intrigues me is that perhaps for no benefit of our own, um, people may engage in these fantasies about ways in which they could help other people. And some early data I've collected suggests that not only does this occur in the majority of people, but for surprising targets. Um, so it's not just for like people that are like romantic partners or parents or siblings, but sometimes for complete strangers, for pets, for unknown animals, um, for one's community. And so I, I, I'm just really intrigued by this idea and it's something I want to explore more in part because I think it might motivate subsequent pro-sociality. Um, so I think that's a, I'm, I'm intrigued by this concept and, and excited to see where it goes. Um, and then in, in kind of a, another hat that I wear is being involved with this, um, uh, the Lancet's COVID-19 commission, trying to just understand and, and take an evidence-based approach to understanding how COVID-19 has impacted mental health. And so I've been, over the last year or so, I've been working um, with an um, amazing team, the task force, trying to um, first catalog and understand uh, what how mental health has changed through the pandemic in comparison to before. Um, and then we're working on a new project, really just trying to understand um, how various aspects of, of COVID response strategies may, may impact mental health and well-being. I want to ask you about the, yeah, you did say a lot there. You weren't kidding when you, when you opened with it. I'm like, yeah, well, that sounds all. That all sounds that's a few. Great. Yeah, that's a few. <laughs> yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll ask you on, on one of those, but the, um, the pro-social fantasy one that, that to me is interesting. Well, first of all, how did you kind of like, how did that kind of come to be? And then I guess my only comment to that would be, I'd, I'd be really curious to hear how uh, culture would affect that. Cause I mean, we kind of alluded to that earlier, like, you know, the different, the, the way that certain societies are structured, they place a value on certain things more than, than others. But, um, but anyway, yeah. How, how did that idea kind of come together? You know, so I wish I remember like the perfect origin story of it. I think my, I, I think what happened was this. I think I was speaking with someone, maybe like a journalist about how I got involved in the research that I do. And I remember giving like, what is, I, I think my a, a true take on it, which is that when I started working with Liz, it was a combination of our interests because she was really interested in figuring out how money could be used to promote well-being, and I was very interested in the pro-social side of things, and so the natural nexus of that was really pro-social spending, spending money on other people, and I think that's very true, um, but the further I think back, um, I remember as a kid having, like, laying awake in bed at night, being very excited about the things that I could do for other people, like, as my parents an anniversary would approach, I would think about how I could use, like, the $15 I had saved from babysitting to, like, naively take them for dinner. Little did I know $15 would not work. <laughs> uh, but I remember thinking like, oh, I'll babysit my brother. And then my parents can use this $15 and go out for dinner. And like, I would stay awake, like thinking about all the ways in which this could work and would be so wonderful. Um, and it made me think that, you know, maybe it's not just me who spends a lot of time thinking about 
um, how we can help other people. And, um, and so like on a whim, I, I um, added this question to a survey that was going out. And the first one was just a question about, you know, here's a description of what a pro-social fantasy is. Has, has this ever happened to you? And the, the, the majority said yes. And then I included it in a subsequent survey and I, you know, I, I tried to make the question like that was a pretty low bar, right? Has this ever happened to you? Um, and so most people are like at least 18 years old in our survey. So they've had a lot of time to think. One, one mental thought that had crossed their mind wasn't maybe the most amazing thing. So I asked like, how often has this happened in the past month? And the, I, I can't remember what the answer was because it's been a while since I looked at the data, but it was, it, it was quite frequent. Like it wasn't like this was once or twice. I think people were saying this was happening on average like 10 times a month or something. And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And so I started asking questions to whom, like who are the types of people you're thinking about? Um, and I started asking some questions just, to, I always have questions pretty much about well-being, but relationships. And not surprisingly, it turned out that the people who had more satisfactory relationships and higher well-being were the kinds of people who were doing these kinds of things. Um, but that's really about as far as like the early data has gone. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued to think about um, who are people excited to help, how, um, and yeah, um, but I think your question about like generalizability and how the culture might shape this is a really interesting one. So, so far I've only been able to examine this question in what many might think of as like a convenient sample. So in either online samples that are almost always, well, heavily drawn from North America or from student samples, which I think are a very worthy and, and meaningful place to begin. But I don't think I'm going to make I'm going to not make some grand sweeping gestures about humanity based on on these initial samples. My suspicion, and I could be wrong, is that um, this might be a relatively, perhaps we'll see. I mean, it's an empirical question. Is is that this might be a relatively common thing that it's not unheard of for people to have pro-social fantasies? I guess I wouldn't be surprised if it were to be detectable at some level across cultures. What, what I think, where I think culture might really matter um, is, is to whom and how. Um, so that's something we've seen in our data before um, that uh, like pro-sociality seems to exist and the emotional benefits of pro-sociality seem to exist in, in many cultures and contexts around the world. But what pro-sociality looks like is strongly determined by one's, cost, by one's cultural context. So like in North America, it might mean taking someone to dinner it might mean buying cards or uh, flowers or a, a ring or something. Um, and in other places it might be, I mean, we saw this in some data from Uganda, paying for someone's um, medication. It, it can look really different or um, actually, and in data from Uganda, paying for someone's airtime, like cell phone time at, at when we were running this study seemed to be a really big deal. Um, and so like there are various ways to use your resources to help other people. Um, and, and it might look very different across cultures, just like, you know, everybody eats food, but what the food looks like differs across cultures. Um, and so th th that's my initial inkling, but I mean, obviously it's, it's to be tested. It also gets me thinking too, like uh, chicken, like the chicken and egg debate, where like specific to to this topic, like does the um, closeness or what's the what's the right word, the, the legitimacy of of the relationship that you have, does that lend itself more to um, 
maybe greater number of pro-social fantasies or maybe the type, like if that affects it or, yeah, so that's kind of interesting too, like, you know, like the, as far as like the feedback uh, from that or, yeah, it, it's it's funny, like, you know, with, with all the, one of the things I've found from reading history too, and it kind of the same idea applies uh, to this conversation, which is like, you kind of think, okay, pro-social fantasy. Okay, cool. And then like you start pulling the thread on that and it's like, whoa, look at all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so many ways yeah, to go with it. I, yeah, I'm excited to see where the, I mean, this project is really in its infancy. And so I'm excited to see which directions it takes. Um, but you're right. I mean, the chicken and the egg problem is an interesting one. Um, my suspicion is that it's probably a bi-directional relationship whereby, you know, like the people with whom we're closest are the most likely we're, we're, we're having pro-social fantasies for, and then having those pro-social fantasies might bring us closer to that person. Um, and so there might be a really interesting dynamic there. Uh, the cool bit is that, you know, the scientific method can give us some inroads to kind of testing. I, I mean, the bi-directional relationship may exist, but you can examine one direction with an experimental design. And so, you know, if, if one key question that emerges from, from this idea is that engaging in pro-social fantasies can make us closer, can, could bring us closer with other people, you know, you can randomly assign some people to, to spend some time having pro-social fantasies and other people to not and see what kind of consequence, if any, it has on their relationship um, dynamics and closeness and, or not. For the other topics that you're currently researching slash concerned mm -hmm. with, are those in, in sort of the more infancy stages as well, or are they a little more prolonged? The, um, there's a variety. So some of them, like the life transition stuff that I was talking about, um, even within that, even within what I think of that as like one umbrella question and topic, some of those questions like transitioning to university, um, that study, which, you know, we're running a couple hundred people through the design, um, that's about halfway through. Um, and some of the, some of the projects are like approved in ethics, but have yet to launch data collection. And so even there, there are like many arms or branches of that project, and they're all in different phases. Um, how to, how to increase generosity in youth. Um, that's further along. I mean, there, again, that umbrella question has multiple arms. And so some of those projects are completed data collections, some are about to begin. Um, but I find it's kind of like juggling. It's nice to have um, different projects in different places. So they, you're not, you know, you're not working on ethics applications for 12 different projects at one time. You're not working on data collection for all projects at one time and analysis. Um, it's kind of nice to be at various stages with various projects um, so that you get the variety. Really short tangent, but um, just lending to uh, what, what you just said. Uh, Hannah Hoosman, I, I believe that's how you say her last name. She's mm -hmm. the mental coach for the Philadelphia Phillies. So she's, mm -hmm. she got really good, um, she got really good, uh, social media for the, for the little that I do use social media as I bitch about it earlier, but then I'm like, oh, yeah, she's got a good page. Um, but, uh, um, her research, she talks a lot about, um, uh, how novelty, uh, optimizes performance. Um, so I, obviously she's talking about through the lens of baseball. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting, mm -hmm. like, yeah, like you saying that, cause yeah, that makes sense because you, you, the, the novelty factor of, each project being at a different stage and, you know, you kind of, you, you have to put on a different hat and then go to work on that and then take it off and go do the mm -hmm. other one. So yeah, it makes sense that 
yeah, for, for, for the enjoyment side of the research. Yeah, interesting. People can check her out if uh, if that's of interest to you. Um, and then, as far as the the trans uh, the the life stage transitioning um, research that you're doing there, is that a, I, I've never really heard of of that research being done, which I guess isn't surprising because uh, I'm not really in psychology anymore. Um, but is that a topic that's been researched uh, before at all, or how did that kind of come about? The life, like the the psychology of life transitions or the pro-sociality. The pro-sociality aspect, yeah. Um, well, you know, so there's, there's some, there is research showing, I mean, a lot of my research kind of examines whether engaging in pro-sociality has these benefits. We've been trying to understand the boundary conditions. There's, there is some research that kind of through um, parallel or almost inverse methods suggests that pro-sociality might be beneficial in times of stress. Um, so for instance, there's a really cool paper, um, I can't remember their first name, but by someone with the last name Raposa, that looks at um, individuals who are um, just dealing with, with like kind of ambient stress in their life. It's not a particular life transition, but just dealing um, with the day-to-day -day challenges of life. And they find that um, on days, it, they use like a daily diary method over the course of several weeks, I believe, or, or two weeks, and find that on days when people are engaging in more pro-social action, they're happier, and it buffers the stress of daily life events. Um, so that's kind of the closest that has been studied, but it's not, um, what I think is, is new and, and novel in this question is that you know, ambient life stress is kind of this like diffuse background noise. I think life transitions can be a pretty all-consuming, um, pretty focused period. Like when someone starts at university, a lot of their life is turned upside down. There's a lot of, there's a new identity, there's a new schedule, there's um, a bunch of new skills and information that needs to be integrated relatively quickly. Um, and so the question here is just, you know, the, it, some of it's pretty basic, just looking at do people bother engaging in pro-sociality during these life transitions, um, or are people primarily focused on themselves, which also makes sense, right? It's it's a difficult time. Maybe, maybe pro-sociality is well and good in many times of our life, but when we need to hunker down and focus on ourselves, maybe, maybe pro-sociality is detrimental. Um, and so... Would the first question is, are people engaging in pro-social acts and, and does it have any emotional, psychological benefit during these times? So there's a bit out there. Um, life transitions, I think, are pretty ubiquitous and common. And so it seems like there's there's some value. The question came from actually my graduate student, Tierra, who um, was a college athlete um, and did a previous master's degree uh, in kinesiology and under trying to understand how like what is the psychology of retirement for a, for a student athlete? And basically found that perhaps not surprisingly, it's, it's a pretty rough go, right? This central identity of someone for so long, especially people who not, you know, they're not just playing on the side. This is a core aspect of their identity and, you know, something that people probably commit many, if not most of their waking hours to either in practice or, or in mental rehearsal. All of a sudden, this big break occurs 
Um, often, you know, people know what's coming, but is there any preparation for it? It turns out it just really sucks. Um, and so she contacted me now, what is probably two, two and a half years ago to, to start chatting about this over email before she was my student. And I was like, listen, I, I'm, I don't know much about, uh, about student athletes, um, but you know, we started to get to talking about like whether pro-sociality might be one thing that could help buffer um, this, this pretty drastic alteration in life and not just for college athletes, but perhaps it's bigger, broader than that. And so it's raised some interesting questions that we're just starting to tap into, which is if pro-sociality is advantageous or helpful, um, does it matter what the act is? And specifically, we're thinking not in not in the granular specifics of the act, but you know, you could think about pro-sociality as being related to one sport. Like you could go back and coach. You could um, you could donate one's equipment, you could do a lot of things that kind of, you could be involved in an alumni network and organize social events or things like that. Or you could find completely um, unrelated ways, untethered ways to be pro-social that are completely unrelated to sport. Like you could donate at a food bank, you could donate blood, you could whatever, you could package homeless meals. There's a lot of different ways in which you can engage in pro-social action, some related to the sport and some completely adjacent to it. And so we're kind of interested in seeing like if pro-sociality is helpful during these transitions are, are one or some of these types of, of, of attempts more effective. Would the death of a loved one be considered a transition, like that's, a life stage transition? That's an interesting one. So I, in some, my, my first inclination, so I'm just reading up on life transitions. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm immersing myself in this literature, but I think my natural inclination is to say yes, um, it, it, at, at least in the sense that if this person was like very close to you. So just as, you know, we think about becoming a parent as a major life transition, and that's the addition of a loved one. Mm -hmm. um, so I imagine, you know, if your spouse or your child were to pass or even, I mean, maybe this has been discussed, but I haven't read it yet, but I could imagine, you know, even the loss of a close other um, that doesn't meet those, the, the, those the definitions or those labels um, could also be a life transition. You know, if you lose your spouse, you become a widow. Um, in many ways, that's probably a very meaningful life transition. I think it's less about the labels and, and perhaps in some ways, more about the psychological underpinnings, which is about like, to what extent is this a huge shift in identity and, and routine? Yeah, because just, just from the outside looking in, um, I, I also was mentioning to you like uh, before, before we were recording, like I'm going through the Sopranos um, mm -hmm. series. And so a lot of people die in that series. And so it always, I always kind of chuckle at the fact like, it's um, very stereotypical Italian. Like when someone dies, it's like you shower them with food and attention is essentially like what, <laughs> what happens. And so when you think about uh, like losing someone, you know, and, and like you said, like, I mean, a divorce, that could count. You lost that person. They're not dead, but it's just, you know, different, um, different stage of life there. But it seems like obvious for, uh, for the death of, of somebody because, the people come to you. And so the, to strengthen those social ties, um, yeah, the, the pro, how the pro-social element fits into there. And then, but I, I'm glad that 
particularly like with a, um, a college athlete, um, that that's maybe a life transition that's extremely stressful, not, not for all, of course, but for many, it's extremely difficult to grasp and, and to move forward with. And then, yeah, how that pro-social element as a way of either buffering the negative emotion of it or actually repairing it, um, re repairing the negative and turning it into positive. So yeah, that's an, I'm, I'm glad that's a really interesting question to be researching in that. Um, so I think for today, I think that's, I think that's pretty much our time. I know kind of, it goes by quick. So um, yeah, I think that's probably a good, good place to stop for today. So it was a pleasure having you on the show and I get to pepper you with all the questions and, and whatnot, but thanks so much for being here. It was great speaking with you today. Thank you for the fun conversation.